I'm Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. And the topic up for discussion today is opioid use disorder intersecting with pregnancy. And we're going to be speaking with Dr. K. Russos-Ross, who is eminently qualified to address this complicated topic. Dr. Russos-Ross is board certified in psychiatry, in obstetrics and gynecology, and in addiction medicine. She is Director of Women's Health at the UF Shands Medical Plaza in Gainesville at the University of Florida. I'd like to start with the data. We see that opioid use in pregnancy is up something like 400% over the last 10 years. We see dramatic rises in the number of opioid overdose in pregnant moms, increases in opioid-related maternal deaths, babies born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, or even neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. Is this huge uptick for real, or are we just getting better at tracking the data? So thank you for that question, and thank you also for having me on this podcast. This is such a relevant topic to bring forth to the community. I'd like to start by saying that opioid use disorder really has been around for many years, and it has progressively worsened each year. When you look at the data and you go back, you can really start seeing an increase in opioid use and opioid use disorders starting in the late 1990s, early 2000s. This is when we started using pain as the fifth vital sign. At the same time, we were really investigating pain and really making it a priority to treat patients' pain. Drug companies were also developing these medications that were thought at that time not to be particularly addictive. What happened was somewhat of a more liberal approach to treating patients with pain medications or opioids. As that continued, more and more people were using opioids. So what we really saw is really the onset of an opioid epidemic that started in around 2010, 2011 is when it was really identified as being an issue. At that time, if you look back, there were lots of what we used to call or still call pill mills, if you will. And because our pill mills, again, if you will, weren't really regulated, there were people that would come from different states to these offices, get prescriptions. So once it started really being a little bit more regulated, once it was identified as an opioid epidemic, TEA and other organizations became involved in shutting down these pill mills. What we actually saw was an increase in heroin and an increase in adulterated opioids as well. And so when we were having people dying from opioid prescription opioid medications, we saw actually a decrease in people dying from prescription opioids, but an increase in people dying from heroin and things like fentanyl or synthetic opioids. But do I think the data is real? I guess I do. Confining our discussion to the the perinatal population. Are there specific population groups, specific demographics that are most affected by these opioid epidemic situations? I get asked this frequently and in in different ways, but essentially this question is asked around, around screening or testing pregnant women. What I would say is it doesn't matter who the woman is. It doesn't matter her race. It doesn't matter her socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter if she's a judge, a lawyer, a doctor, or a homeless woman. We see opioid use disorder in all types of women from all classes and all races. When people say, should we target a specific demographic or should we target specific patients? No. 
we should universally screen all pregnant women. I would say that there is no more powerful time in a woman's life for motivation to change than when she's pregnant, because this is a time where most women really want to do their best at being able to take the best care of their pregnancy that they can. This is where we really have an opportunity to really impact a woman and to really make a positive change for her. It raises a question as to how many of these pregnancies, and perhaps the data does not exist, but how many of these pregnancies were accidental? How many of them were by design? How many of them had some sort of history that would help guide us in looking at the larger psychological gestalt of a woman who all of a sudden finds herself pregnant and on narcotics? Do we have any sense of the psychological position as to planned or unplanned pregnancies? That's an interesting question. What I would say is we know in general over 50% of all pregnancies are unintended or unplanned. Whether they use women use opioids or not or other drugs or not, at least 50% of all pregnancies are unplanned or unintended. There in itself, you see a significant amount of unplanned or unplanned to be exposed pregnancies. Many times there's dual diagnosis. There's not yes. just a substance use disorder. There's also a psychiatric disorder at the same time. You can imagine if we have a patient who has bipolar disorder, a patient who's significantly depressed, who may or may not be consistently taking their medicines and doing well, and potentially even using substances to cope, that that might, again, increase their risk of getting pregnant. One of the things that I'm very passionate about is really making sure women, all women, have access to contraceptive planning. But especially when you think about women who are doing their very best and trying to do the right thing, going to medical methadone clinic or being on methadone maintenance or Subutex or any of those opioid maintenance programs, that we really do our best to make sure that they're on some sort of contraceptive like a LART, which is a, an IUD or a Nexplanon or an arm insert. If a woman can plan her pregnancy and not have to be reliant on a daily sort of contraception. So again, going back to our patients who are using substances and may or may not remember to take medications every day or patients who have dual diagnosis with psychiatric disorders who may or may not remember to take their medications every day. If we take that need to remember off the table by offering them a long-acting reversible contraceptive that can last three to six years or 10 years, we have to worry less about them having an unintended pregnancy. Are there women who are using opioids who plan pregnancies and who want to be pregnant while using opioids? Absolutely. Are a portion of them unintended pregnancies? Absolutely. Again, I don't know any specific data on specific numbers other than in general populations. Specifically, who should be screened and when? Wonderful question again. I'm so glad I'm participating in this podcast today. Every single woman should be universally screened for substance use disorders, just like they should be universally screened for psychiatric disorders. When we talk about screening, we're talking about verbal or written screens. We're not talking about a what we call a urine drug screen, which is actually toxicology. ACOG, American College of OBGYN, recommends that every woman is screened at least once during pregnancy for substance use. In my perfect world, we would do that at their 
initial OB visit, at least at that initial OB visit, because again, no greater motivation for change than when a woman is pregnant. So if we can catch her early, even if she declines any help or services, if we can identify her and keep offering either therapy or substance treatment or medications, even if she says no the first, second, or third time, maybe she'll say yes the fourth or fifth time. Even if she denies having a use disorder the initial time, if we screen again during pregnancy and screen again in postpartum, the more screening we do, the better that is. Screening options, the four Ps or the five Ps is an excellent screening tool that's recommended. The NIDA quick screen is also a good option, as is the CRAFT for women less than 26. We usually recommend that. From what I understand, in a number of instances, pregnant women are fearful of having a screening because they're afraid of potential punitive measures. Would you say that these fears are warranted here in Florida? Here is what I tell pregnant women. When in the state of Florida, there's no reporting, if you will, of a woman using substances in pregnancy. The reporting does, however, happen. There's a CAPTA rule that means that baby who was born exposed to substances having withdrawal type symptoms, that has to be reported. And it's usually reported to DCF. And that's usually done though after the baby's born. When a woman's pregnant, that baby, if you will, doesn't have, the baby doesn't necessarily count until it's delivered. Once it's delivered, then that's a substance exposed infant that is reported. But I usually tell women, the best thing we can do is get you into treatment while you're pregnant. If we can illustrate that you're seeing a therapist, that you're going to AA or NA, that you're in treatment, that you're on medications, you are already taking all the right steps. And those give you the absolute best chances of keeping custody of your baby because you're illustrating that you're in treatment. A woman who's in treatment many, many times, the majority of the time, is able to keep custody of her child. It's women who aren't in treatment or who are not doing well where DCF really may get involved. And to follow what you said a few minutes ago, there's a large increase in the use of adulterated drugs, heroin. If they are injecting them, then there's a lot of other adulterants babies going to be exposed to. Does that rise to a different legal standard? We do not typically report during pregnancy. And again, ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, feels very strongly to what Dr. Schillinger mentioned, is that we do not want women who are pregnant to not attend prenatal care because of fear of being reported, fear of being arrested or any of that. So ACOG feels very strongly that we do not, the rules really sort of follow that for us here in the state. And just to follow up, and I think the screening element is mandatory, whichever particular form that is used. But if someone goes into treatment, and this is a big discussion, so I expect not a simple answer. Do you put these women on bufenerone? Do you put them on methadone? Do you detox them? What is, if there is a standard approach that's safe for the mother and for the baby? Mm -hmm. what, what happened? Yes. ASAM, the um, Society of Addiction Medicine, and ACOG, American College of OBGYN, both recommend that women 
women are maintained on long-acting medications such as methadone or buprenorphine for opioid use disorder in pregnancy. The recommendation is that if they're on some short-acting or if they're on fentanyl or if they're IV injecting, whatever they're doing, that we transfer them over to either methadone or buprenorphine. My opinion is that whenever possible, I prefer buprenorphine to methadone. The reason for that is there are very good studies showing that babies exposed to buprenorphine versus methadone do better. They require less treatment. They also have been shown to need less hospital stay related to treatment of an AS. The thing that's interesting about all of this is there's no specific dose of methadone or buprenorphine where if you're over this, your baby's going to have NAS, or if you're below it, your baby's going to be fine. I could be on 120 milligrams of methadone and my baby only need to be in the hospital for 10 days, and you could be on 10 milligrams and your baby's in the hospital for two or three weeks. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just every baby and every pregnancy is different. The recommendation is that we have women on a sufficient dose of methadone or buprenorphine to prevent cravings and to prevent withdrawal. If we can prevent cravings, that means that mom hopefully will not go out and IV inject, will not go out and prostitute to get more drugs, will not expose herself or the baby to other things like HIV, hepatitis, sexually transmitted infections, death, everything else. We want to make sure that she's on a sufficient dose to prevent cravings. The other thing is we want to prevent withdrawal symptoms. There are some drugs, as you all know, that if somebody withdraws from, for example, alcohol, that they could die from withdrawal. Opioids are not one where a woman would die from opioid withdrawal. She'll be miserable, right? She'll have cramping, diarrhea, all sorts of things. There is some evidence to show that that withdrawal could be dangerous or harmful to the baby. From withdrawal-type symptoms in utero to the worst-case scenario, which would be a fetal death in utero. The reason that we choose the long-acting medications like buprenorphine or methadone are because they are long-acting. So they're much less likely to get a high and a low, the baby, like a peak and a trough, as they would with a short-acting medication like oxycodone or hydrocodone. So in terms of the goals, you're saying it would be more leaning towards an MAT approach as opposed to a detox? Yes. Absolutely. There are occasions where I will have patients who are very, very motivated to try to decrease their dose or come off of the medication completely. In those instances, again, it's not the norm, it's not the suggested route, but it is appropriate for some patients. For those patients, I recommend a slow taper, but once you hit cravings or once you hit withdrawal, you have to hold and potentially go up on the dose again. But if you can slowly, safely taper somebody off, that would be great. As long as they're also in some sort of other treatment, they still need to be going to groups. They still need to be in AA or NA. They still need to be in treatment itself, even if it's not medication treatment to help prevent relapse. Is there any difference in the withdrawal, should you choose to do a withdrawal, as to where a woman is in the pregnancy, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester? Is that a variable? We as OBGYNs always say that if we're going to do stuff, we should do it in the second trimester. Same sort of thing here. In an ideal situation, you would do it in the second trimester. First trimester, if God forbid a woman has a miscarriage, you don't want it to be thought of due to the tapering off of the medication. In the third 
third trimester, you want to decrease the risk of any sort of fetal tracing abnormality or preterm labor, preterm contractions, anything like that. So, so the women who come to your clinic, where are they? Do you see mostly first trimester, second? Is there a pattern? It can honestly be anywhere. In an ideal world, in a perfect scenario, we want to see women initially in the first trimester because then we can do all the prenatal things that need to be done. We can catch them early. Sometimes women don't enter prenatal care until the second trimester, sometimes not until the third trimester, sometimes not until they're in labor. And that can be for multiple reasons. It can be because they don't have insurance, they're waiting for Medicaid, and so they have to wait till they get Medicaid to go to, to the doctor. Sadly, some of them are because they're actively using and they're not thinking about getting prenatal care or similar to what we talked about before, they're scared to get prenatal care because they're scared the doctor's going to find out that they're using and report them or they're scared that the doctor is going to find out they're using and not want to see them. There's lots of different real and or imagined obstacles that are out there. Focusing on MAT, again, be it methadone, be it buprenorphine, from what I'm hearing is this is something that is safe during pregnancy. Is it safe for the baby? Is it safe after the birth? breastfeeding, things like that. Yes, we believe it's overall safe. The thing that we worry about is NAS or neonatal abstinence syndrome. We know that this is something that's going to happen. It's a known sort of complication, if you will, of having patients in MAT. We've gotten very good at treating it. And so again, the risks of leaving a woman untreated with her having cravings or doing other things instead, those risks far outweigh the risks to the baby from NAS. And so we do feel that it's appropriate in general to keep women on or to transition them on to methadone or buprenorphine. With regards to lactation, we do recommend that women breastfeed. We don't want them using any other substances. And so if their only substance is methadone or buprenorphine, then yes, we want them to breastfeed. If they're using other drugs such as cocaine and whatever else, we would recommend against lactation. But it's actually great for them to breastfeed because the baby's still getting very small amounts of opioid through the breast milk, and that might help decrease their risk of NAS. That might help lessen the amount of of opioids that they need to be treated with as well. Following up on what Brent just spoke about, the safety issues and the elaboration of the safety question. When people use the hallucinogen, when they use cocaine, there is a rather significant body of literature to suggest that there are neurodevelopmental issues that the child may face. Do we have any concern about that with the opioids? We're looking at that now. There are several studies that are out there. There's prospective studies that are being done at different institutions looking at long-term effects. The data we have thus far is overall reassuring. Problem though is there's a lot of confounders, if you will. Typically, if a child is living in an environment where mom or whoever in the home is using drugs, they may or may not be attentive parents. They may or may not be giving this sort of emotional reassurance and whatever that children need to grow to be able to not have attachment disorders, not have learning difficulties, not have behavioral issues themselves. So it's hard to say if it's an environmental influence that plays a role in these outcomes in children or if it's just the medication exposure. I think it's probably multifactorial. And along with this, of course, is the whole notion of nutrition. 
And if she's spending her money on drugs, she may not be eating correctly. And this becomes another variable. I can remember seeing when I was working in New York City that a lot of these women, they were nutritionally out of balance in addition to everything else. Does your program address all these things? I love the idea of what you're doing. I think it's great. It's just that that goes without a without a question. That's just plain old-fashioned good. But you mentioned a few minutes ago that people might be waiting for insurance. So what happens if someone comes to you and they don't have insurance? Great question. So the program that you're referring to is our BH Impact program that we have available. This is actually a HRSA-funded grant that we receive to provide really sort of twofold services. Clinicians in the state of Florida can call and speak to me directly about a specific patient. It's really related to psychiatric disorders and substance use disorders. So if you were the OBGYN and you had a patient in your office with perinatal depression or that you just discovered was using substances and you weren't really sure what to do, you can call and speak to me and we can go over the case together and come up with a plan that we think together might work best. Additionally, we have a resource and referral arm to this program where you can call and speak to the resource and referral person and you can say the patient lives in X zip code and either has insurance and they, it, we have everything, even all the different MMA, Medicaids, and private insurance or no insurance. And you can say, you know, she lives in this city. This is her insurance or she doesn't have insurance. Are there any providers in that area that would see her? This list is actually continually updated every month. Therapists sometimes, physicians sometimes change what insurances they take and don't take. And so for that reason, we constantly update to make sure we're up to date on that. There are opportunities for the physician to be able, if they don't feel comfortable, to learn really sort of hands-on learning of what medications might be appropriate and or to have opportunity if they don't know the referral possibilities in their area. This work that you are doing is, is really terrific, but it certainly begs the question, do we have good long-term data? Are we actually making a difference? How many of these pregnant women will resume their substance abuse after the birth of the baby? That's a good question, and I don't know if I really have an answer regarding data on that. There's a lot of reasons for us to be diligent about addressing this and continuing to care for these women. In our state, we know that the number one reason for pregnancy-associated mortality was substance-related. See, in the year after pregnancy, the main reason women died in that demographic was related to substances, so substance overdose. We we know it's a problem. We also know that, again, women may be able to decrease their use or stop using or get on buprenorphine or methadone or whatever in pregnancy. But after delivery, things change. They're not seeing their OB routinely. They may lose their Medicaid insurance again. There's a lot of stressors that go along with having a new baby at home, not sleeping well, financial things of being able to take care for the baby. So there are certainly lots of stressors that might increase a woman's risk of relapse. 
it's important as obstetricians for us to also get them plugged into community programs. So there's Healthy Start, which is a program here in Florida, Healthy Families as well. They both have arms that address substance use. There's also the McVie program. There's different programs that are free to women in our state that can help give them support resources to help decrease their risk of relapse. But your point is is well taken. There is definitely a risk of relapse in the postpartum period. Are you hopeful looking towards the future with the anticipated change in the Medicaid funding going from the 60 days to the one year in the postpartum period? And and that, that actually went into effect during COVID. Is that correct? Yes, that was honestly one of the most fantastic things that we've done for our women in this state. Now, Medicaid coverage no longer is lost at the six to eight weeks postpartum. Now, women are able to keep their Medicaid for a year postpartum. That's significantly improves our odds of catching women with postpartum depression that can occur up until the full year postpartum. And it certainly increases a woman, again, who initiated treatment for substances in pregnancy to continue that treatment postpartum. I think it's a spectacular thing and really an opportunity to maintain care for women. And then again, to transition them to primary care. Many women may have never seen a primary care physician or rarely seen a primary care physician because they were uninsured and the only way they got insurance was because of pregnancy. Is your program growing around the state? Is it sadly too narrowly geographically limited to around your university? Wonderful question. The facts are that the HRSA grant that we received was actually for three specific counties in the surrounding areas. For Alachua County, Leon County, and Duval County, it's essentially the Jacksonville area, Gainesville area, and Tallahassee in the surrounding areas. We decided as recipients of that grant that we would actually open ourselves to the whole state because we really feel passionately that in a perfect world, we'll be able to get state funding. This HRSA grant is a five-year grant. We're starting year three. Our goal is really to make it a sustainable program so that it won't be too expensive for the state to pick up after the HRSA grant. We are, despite really being focused on those three countings and the surrounding areas, we're really open to everyone. Do most of the women keep their babies or is there a fair number of them who put them up for adoption? The majority of women do keep their babies and do maintain custody. It's the early intervention. It's catching it early. It's trying to convey to these women, if you think you are pregnant, go talk to somebody, appropriate screening, and let's catch it early. Are you finding much sympathy and modeling by the general OBGYN community outside of your clinic to do these types of things? I think that many years back, I think a lot of obstetricians probably felt uncomfortable or maybe not adequately educated to take care of women with substance use disorders. It's also possible that some of them just didn't want to take care of women with substance use disorders. However, now, after all the information with it being an epidemic, after all of the education offered by ACOG, I really do think that obstetricians are much more likely and much more willing to care for women with substance use disorders. And I think that more and more obstetricians 
citizens are interested and willing to screen. One of the things that I find difficult with screening that I've even had myself is if you screen, what do you do with a positive? If we don't have things placed for a positive, it's really hard for whatever clinician, for whatever screening tool that's being used to actually feel comfortable screening. At some point, for some people, it's a don't ask, don't tell, because if I find out, then what am I going to do? And so the physician or the clinician may feel bad or incompetent or frustrated that they don't have anything to offer. Now we do have more and more opportunities for treatment, programs like the one I mentioned that I'm involved in. There's the Healthy Start. There's Healthy Families, McBee. There are other resources in our state to help the physician or clinician be able to refer the patient. I agree with that more than I can emphasize. I know a lot of my colleagues don't ask about psychiatric domains in a patient because they don't want to get involved. It's complicated. It makes it very difficult. Don't ask, don't know. Should it become the standard of care? Like going to an internist and them not doing basic CBC screening. They're not asking about a huge component in this person's life. Is it becoming the standard of care? Will it require legislation to become the standard of care? So potentially both. I do definitely think that the physicians in our state are doing a much better job in screening for psychiatric disorders. Many uh, people are using the Edinburgh Perinatal Depression Scale. Some are using the PHQ-9. They're feeling a bit more comfortable in screening. The thing that's interesting about the program that I'm a part of, the BH Impact, is you know this as a psychiatrist. So a woman becomes pregnant she calls her psychiatrist and says, I'm pregnant. And the psychiatrist says, oh, gosh, you got to stop your medicine. I, I don't know if they're safe or not. Or she sees her OBGYN and she says, I'm on these psychiatric medicines. And the OBGYN says, oh, gosh, I don't know what those medicines are. You got to stop them. I don't know if they're safe. What inevitably happens is that the woman really is, or, or maybe she stops them herself, too. But what ends up happening is that the woman and her fetus are really left out alone. The psychiatrist doesn't feel comfortable or the obstetrician doesn't feel comfortable, and so she's left untreated. One of my biggest motivators, one of the things that I really feel passionate about is educating both psychiatrists and obstetricians to feel comfortable in treating psychiatric disorders. Now, I don't need them to do high level, they failed two or three different medicines or they're on many different combinations, but initiating an SSRI and feeling competent to do that and educated to do that is really the focus that I have. And so people can call me and run the case by me and we can talk about what to do. And then they can call me the next day with a very similar patient and we can talk about it again. The goal is that the more physicians call in or practitioners or midwives call in, the more comfortable they'll be in initiating treatment for these women. Similarly, psychiatrists as well, because I the, the program is open for psychiatrists. It's not just for OBGYNs. It's for psychiatrists. It could be for family practice or OBs. OBs know that stuff's safe in pregnancy, right? But psychiatrists know the meds but don't know the pregnancy part so much. Because the focus of what I'm teaching or educating is different if I'm talking to a psychiatrist versus if I'm talking to an OB. When someone comes to you, they're addicted to opioids and you put them on a MAT and you begin to know them better and you see that really underlying this is a depression. Would you start an antidepressant at that time? Hopefully reduce the, the possibility that afterwards they'll relapse, they'll lose connection with the clinic. 
Mixing medications is like you just referred to. It's an issue, especially people get scared. If you're already on narcotics, my goodness, we don't know what we're treating. It's got to be an amazing challenge. Would you mix medications? Mm -hmm. It's another great question. One of the main reasons you're asking is because is it a substance-induced mood disorder or is it a mood disorder, comma, substance use disorder? So to be honest, I would start an SSRI because many of the patients, as we mentioned, probably have dual diagnosis. With a good history, you can really sort of tease that out. What started first? How was their mood before initiating substances? Has there been a time where you weren't using substances? And how was your mood during that time? So I think with a decent history, you should get a pretty good gestalt. The SSRIs are overall safe in pregnancy. And so just like you said, if I can help her continue doing better, have her depression under better control so she's less likely to relapse, all those are good positive things that give her the best chances of being a good mom and being able to keep her baby. Which takes me to my final question. And we're talking about specialists, OBGYN, psychiatry, but what can we do to get docs in general to move the needle to help the most vulnerable? Our target audience is physicians in general. What's, what's the message that we need to be putting out there? One of the things that's really important, and I really do hope that physicians in general are more cognizant about this, stopping that initial opioid prescription that isn't warranted is important. Certainly if somebody has a surgical procedure or has a fracture or a significant something going on that, that requires an opioid, absolutely. For other reasons that we might use opioids, trying to not start with that. Starting with your Tylenol Motrin, starting with your physical therapy, massage therapy, doing other things before an opioid so that woman's brain never gets exposed to that opioid to start with, I think is really probably one of the most important things that we as physicians can do. Um, back to something else we talked about earlier, making sure that women have contraception so that when they get pregnant, it is a planned pregnancy and not an unplanned pregnancy. Dr. K. Russos-Russ, thank you so much for shedding an important light on this critical topic. This has truly been an enlightening, highly informative discussion. Thank you so much for having me.